The Deep Dive Podcast presents Mysteries of the Deep. Hello, divers. I'm Tom Feeney, amateur welder and professional irritant. This is a side project of the Deep Dive Podcast, where myself and my co-host Manda take a look at some of the more obscure offerings available on streaming media. This week, we'll dive into a lurid tale involving violent crime, drug addiction, grisly murder, and sick humor. Of course, I'm referring to comic books published in the 1950s. Mysteries of the Deep presents Why Were Comic Books Nearly Banned 60 Years Ago? During the height of Cold War paranoia, the boogeyman under a kid's bed was probably either a communist or a juvenile delinquent. Now, the so-called problem of juvenile delinquency was mostly hyperbolic and was likely inflamed by the media. Americans were fearful that their children were being led down a destructive path. Parents demanded action. Something had to be done to prevent our precious babies from becoming leather-jacketed, switchblade-pointing hoodlums. And what of those poor, unwed teenage mothers? What's causing our children to behave this way, and how can we stop it? Well, of course, parents wanted scapegoats, and there were many. Tabloids, movies, and even that new rock and roll music all the kids listen to these days, all made for convenient targets. One of those targets was, like jazz music, biomorphism, and vaudeville, a truly American art form, comic books. Since publication of the first modern comic book in 1933, Americans have been passionate about the art form. Now, those early comics were mostly reprints of newspaper comic strips. It wouldn't be long before characters like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and the original Captain Marvel dominated the market. Some issues sold well over a million copies a month. Now, after World War II, superhero comics fell out of favor. The big sellers, war comics, romance, science fiction, but mainly crime and horror comics were most in demand. Now, the crime comics included titles like Murderous Gangsters, Prison Riot, Crime Does Not Pay, and Crime Must Pay the Penalty. Hmm, you get the idea. Now, as you would expect, these comics dealt with very bad people doing very bad things. Now, at first it was just stories about cops and robbers, but things got more intense as writers and artists began pushing the limits of what was acceptable. The violence became more graphic and the bad guys grew more brutal and bloody. This ramp-up in gruesomeness led to the proliferation of horror comics. And aside from the usual diet of vampires, werewolves, and mummies, there were also tales of murderous lovers, twisted revenge fantasies, and even cannibalism. I was a boy and played with the gang, we did a lot of things. We roasted potatoes, went on expeditions, we tipped over garbage cans now and then. We wrote nasty remarks about the teacher on the sidewalk. But we never spent an afternoon sitting around like this, reading. What a wonderful thing this would be if they were reading something worthwhile. Something that would stimulate their desires to build and to grow. But they're not reading anything constructive. They're reading stories devoted to adultery, to sexual perversion, to horror 
for the most despicable of crimes. Horror and crime comics upset kids. Now, the kids absolutely, well, ate it up. Uh, the most famous or infamous publisher of these horror titles was EC Comics, run by a man named William Gaines. Now, his company was responsible for the three most iconic horror titles of that era. Tales from the Crypt, The Vault of Horror, and The Haunt of Fear. These books sold incredibly well. Well enough to draw some unwanted attention in the form of a crusading psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham. Dr. Wortham was a noted progressive who spent his early career fighting against segregation and caring for poor African-American patients whose mental health issues were being ignored. Dr. Wortham would soon turn his attention to what he considered to be a primary cause of juvenile delinquency, something he saw his young patients doing, reading comic books. The real question is this, are comic books good or are they not good? If you want to raise a generation that is half stormtroopers and half cannon fodder with a dash of illiteracy, then comic books are good. In fact, they are perfect. Wortham postulated that the violent, morbid, and even sexual imagery in comics influenced impressionable children negatively and encouraged antisocial behavior. Now, some of Wortham's findings seemed a bit odd. He claimed that the relationship between Batman and Robin had homosexual undertones. He also labeled Wonder Woman as a lesbian and Superman as a fascist. He published his findings in a book titled Seduction of the Innocent. The book was a bestseller and set the stage for what would be a confrontation between comic book publishers and the federal government. In this case, the government took the form of Tennessee Senator Estes Kefauver. The senator had a reputation as a dogged foe of organized crime and in 1950 led a highly publicized Senate committee investigating the inner workings of the mob. The hearings were among the first to ever be televised and was the first time many Americans were aware of the existence of the so-called mafia. Kefauver revealed that organized crime had influence in nearly every area of American commerce. That included comic books. Indirectly, sort of. Of course, mobsters had no influence on the content of the comics, but they were heavily involved with their distribution to newsstands. That connection led Senator Kefauver right to the comic books themselves and into another Senate hearing. This time, looking into the effect comic books had on America's vulnerable youth. By this time, comics had already begun being demonized by some parent and church groups. There were even rallies where comic book burnings took place. May I have your name, please? Uh, Estes Kefauver. And your occupation, sir? I'm a uh, politician, a member of the United States Senate. Senator Kefauver, what have you learned in, so far in your investigation on the subject of comic books? Uh, all of our testimony from psychiatrists and uh, children themselves uh, show that it's uh, very upsetting, that it has a bad moral effect, and that it is directly responsible for a substantial amount of juvenile delinquency and child crime. 
Anti-comic book sentiment was at an all-time high when the Senate hearings began. And when the time came for testimonies, Dr. Wortham was only too happy to be their star witness. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Example after example of violent and horrific imagery were produced as evidence for how these comic books were corrupting children. One man on the opposite side of the issue was ready and willing to fight for the life of his industry. That's the man behind DC Comics I mentioned earlier, William Gaines. I was the first publisher in these United States to publish horror comics. I'm responsible. I started them. Some may not like them. That's a matter of personal taste. It would be just as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to a Dr. Wortham as it would be to explain the sublimity of love to a frigid old maid. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of our own children? Do we forget that they are citizens too and entitled to the essential freedom to read? Or do we think our children so evil, so vicious, so simple-minded that it takes but a comic magazine story of murder to set them to murder, of robbery to set them to robbery? The acrimonious testimony gave Gaines the chance to vent his frustrations but it seemed like the censorship, if not outright banning of these comic books, was a foregone conclusion. In 1954, in order to circumvent a potential death blow to the comic book industry more horrible than any artist could conceive, several industry leaders decided to form an organization called the Comics Magazine Association of America in order to self-censor their own comics before the government stepped in. According to William Gaines, the organization was formed behind his back. The other publishers apparently felt Gaines was hurting their case with his defiant testimony. That group instituted the Comics Code Authority, a body that would review every comic book before publication to see if it met certain guidelines. No sex, no blood, no gore, no vampires, ghouls, werewolves, or zombies and the bad guys always lose. Always. If your comic didn't pass the code, your comic didn't get their seal of approval, and newsstands wouldn't carry your comics. All of this was totally voluntary, of course, but everyone knew they had to play ball. And so it was for decades. Some comic book companies died out. Some switched to magazine publishing to avoid the code entirely. That's the path William Gaines took with one of his most popular comic books, Mad, which became Mad Magazine. The code itself had been revised several times since its inception, but over the last couple of decades, fewer and fewer publishers cared about getting code approval and it fell into disuse. In 2011, the last publisher to still submit its books to the code, Archie Comics, announced it too was discontinuing its use. That meant the end of the Comics Code Authority. These days, most comic book publishers have their own rating systems to let parents and readers know what kind of content the books feature. While comic book sales never again would reach the numbers they once enjoyed, 
the industry itself managed to survive and thrive. Dr. Frederick Wortham's theories about the connection between comic books and juvenile delinquency have been mostly dismissed by modern psychiatry. It was a clear-cut example of the term, correlation does not imply causation. In other words, just because juvenile delinquents read comic books doesn't prove that comic books caused juvenile delinquency. Thanks for listening. If this is the first time you've heard this podcast, check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss a single one. And we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at the Deep Dive Podcast at gmail.com or on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter feeds. And you can find links to those on our website, thedeepdivepodcast.com. All clips used in this podcast are meant for educational purposes only and not to infringe on existing copyrights. Mysteries of the Deep is a production of Automaton Studios.